0: Realm Presents Book Burners, Season 3, Episode 19.
1: One. The picnic was supposed to bring them closer together. It was an earnest effort at bonding and creating family togetherness. Step-family togetherness, anyway. But Sylvester had to run into the office to fix some urgent email problem at the last minute and left Magdalena on her own with his kids. The afternoon had been a never-ending squabble. Hugo pulled Gudrun's hair, she pinched him, he took the charger for her tablet, she took his headphones, and by the way, it was her turn to play music now, and Hugo's ears were ugly. But Magdalena loved her husband, and so she must love his children. She kept telling herself that. If you keep arguing like this, she threatened. I won't let you have any lunch. Your lunch is terrible anyway, Gudrun shot back. She tossed her braids over her shoulders. Nobody should have to eat that kind of garbage. Magdalena regarded the picnic lunch, which consisted of a stack of inoffensive sandwiches and some perfectly acceptable salad greens with a mild vinaigrette. You can't talk to me like that. It was Hugo's turn. Don't you be mean to my sister, he said, and never mind that he'd been the one tormenting his sister until that very moment. You stay out of it, snapped Magdalena. The children both screamed. Magdalena looked around nervously. You're bothering people, she hissed. I don't care, Gutrun cried. I hate you, and I hate my father, and I wish you would just die. Magdalena was, all things considered, very calm about this. I'm taking away your screens, she said. She reached toward Gutrun's tablet, but the girl kicked at her and curled around her precious electronic companion. Magdalena tugged at the corner and pulled it out of Gudrun's hand. Hugo pummeled Magdalena in the back of the head with his tiny fists. Why, you little, she started. She reared up and turned toward them with venom in her eyes. The children shrieked and fled from her toward the thick bushes at the fringe of the woods. Go on and run, Magdalena shouted. Try to hide. If you know what's good for you, you'll never come back either. They didn't answer. She collapsed onto the grass, overcome. No sense in chasing them, they'd just run farther away. And anyway, soon enough they'd be hungry, they'd be back. Gudrun and Yugo crept into the woods hand in hand, all prior animosity forgiven and forgotten, as is the way of children. Do you think she's still mad? Gudrun asked. She's always mad, Yugo answered, his lips twisted up. I wish we had something to eat with us. Gudrun turned out her pockets, but all she found was the wrapper for a sweet she'd snuck earlier in the day. Maybe we can find something in the forest, she said. Berries or? She forged a path through the underbrush. Yugo trailed along behind her. As they went deeper among the trees, a warm aroma settled upon them, inviting them to go further still. Do you smell that? Gudrun asked her eyes bright. Yugo raised his chin and sniffed, and sighed with pleasure. It's like honey cookies or ginger, or? I'm finding out what it is. Gudrun plunged between the trees, and Yugo followed suit. They emerged onto a narrow trail, meandering its lazy way through the trees. A sign read, Yugo and Gudrun, go this way. The children looked at each other wide-eyed and followed the trail. The forest grew brighter around them as they walked. Gudrun snapped a twig off a tree and stared at it. It was translucent like glass and sticky in her hands like sugar. She stuck her tongue out and tentatively touched the twig to it. It was sweet, like the caramel glass her real mother had made when she was small. Gudrun laughed out loud. The plants are made of candy, she said. Try it. Hugo plucked a small white mushroom from the side of the path. It was spongy and dry to the touch. He popped it into his mouth and then lit up like a beacon. Marshmallow, he mumbled around the sticky blob. They followed the trail, sampling leaves of marzipan and chocolate bark as they went. There was a cottage up ahead, not too far away. It was a pretty thing with lollipop flowers planted all around its walls. But the house itself, though painted bright colors, was ordinary enough. Not anything so ridiculous as gingerbread. A warm glow shone out of the windows, speaking volumes about baking and family and love. Gudrun stared at it with trepidation. A memory struggled to catch her attention, a story, a warning. Something about being lost in the woods, about candy, about cottages. Do you think, she started. Hugo, younger and much less fearful, marched up and tapped on the door. Hello? He called. Is there anybody there? He tried the latch. It's locked, he announced. He knocked again. Anyone home? Gudrun tipped her head. Do you hear that? She asked. She could almost hear a song in a language she didn't speak, but she heard it with her bones, not her ears. It was a promise of sweets and games and all the joyful things of childhood. It's coming from the ground over here, her brother said. Look. Beside the walkway leading to the cottage, a piece of pale stone jutted from the ground. It was carved into the shape of a pair of delicate, rounded feet. Rain and wind had begun to dig the stone out of the earth, but hadn't yet finished the job. Gudrun pulled at the little feet, but the thing wouldn't budge. It might as well have been held down by an anchor. Help me get it out, she said. Hugo found a stick and dug at the ground with it. Gudrun pulled at the earth Hugo had loosened with her bare hands. It was soft and loamy and came away in satisfying clods. The stone was, much like an iceberg, far bigger than they had imagined from seeing just the tip. Those tiny feet ballooned into broad legs, which ballooned further into a round derriere. At last, they revealed a fat figurine of a woman, slightly bigger than Gudrun's hand with no clothes and no face. What is it? She asked. A doll? She brushed the last of the dirt from the figure's enormous belly and pulled it out of its hole. It was very heavy. The door to the cottage opened. The orb flared so bright it left spots in front of Manchu's eyes. He blinked away his bedazzlement. Asante swept toward the device to get the news. Germany, she said. Her brow furrowed. Wait, this is- Asante looked over her shoulder to where Sal and Liam were poised, watching, like puppies ready to dive toward a dropped scrap of food. I need to speak to you privately, she told Menchu. He nodded, slowly. Sal and Liam busied themselves trying to put up the appearance of not paying attention, but he could feel their eyes on his back every step of the short walk through his office. Asante closed the door behind them. She turned toward Manchu and smiled apologetically. Before she could speak, Manchu asked, it's an exclusion zone, isn't it? He rubbed at the bridge of his nose. He hadn't been to such a zone in some ten years now and had quietly hoped he'd never have to go to one again. When everything went right, the society captured and segregated magic when it could, and obliterated magic when it couldn't, but the society had not always won. There were times and places where magic could at best be contained, but never eliminated. Asante nodded. I'm afraid so. Do we know what's being contained in there? I'm not sure. Asanti spread her hands wide. There was a fire at some point that took out a three-year stretch of records on the society's activities, including what happened there. All I have left are fragments called from later entries. Something about... Oh. Women leading people into temptation? Hungry children? Though I'll be honest, it's hard to distinguish any of that from the baseline church writings of the period. Mathieu leaned back against the edge of his desk. I wonder why I would be disturbed now. Asante sighed. That's not as much of a surprise as I wish it was, she said. I've been expecting this for a few years now. Team 2 has had a hard time keeping people away over the last ten years, as the local population has grown and new construction gets closer and closer to the exclusion area. They've got a cover story about a protected species, I think, but sooner or later somebody was going to stumble in. Minshew nodded grimly. Easy enough to keep it a secret when magic had taken over a patch of desert a hundred miles from the nearest scrap of habitable land or a remote fishing village clinging to a stony coast unknown to anyone who didn't live there to begin with. But some bubbles of magic had never been far from civilization to begin with. And civilization was always growing. Asante pulled a pair of spectacles from her pocket and pressed them into Manchu's palm. The lenses were round, thicker at the edges than the center, and made of a crystal streaked with pink and green. The frame was brass and elaborately hinged. They wouldn't have looked out of place on the set of The Wizard of Oz. Here, take these. They can help you see what's real and what's been affected by magic, so you can find your way past the barrier the society placed there, she said. Or oh, that's what the records say. I'll get the team ready, menchu said. Thank you. Asanti placed a hand on his forearm. Wait, can you leave some of the team behind? What? Asanti hesitated. I think we should keep some of the team in reserve here, so we can react immediately in case Hana strikes again. This silence from her doesn't seem like it can last. Certainly not after everything that happened in Guatemala. Manchu felt a brief pang of guilt. He had held back some of the truth of Guatemala, Hannah's curses, her revelations about the angelic design. The universe as a project, as a work of art. He had left that part out of his report. They had no proof, no confirmation, only Hannah's word that the world was sinking, and that she was murdering people to seal the cracks. The omission was another small betrayal, to add to all he'd committed already. And I'm confident this thing in Germany isn't going to be too difficult for you to handle, if it's been contained before. And that's a good point, menchu mulled it over. I'll take Sal with me, he said, and then if something happens, you'll have Grace and Liam. Thank you, Asanti said. She looked more relieved than she strictly should have. Minshew paused on the way out, struck by a new thought. Why did you have these in your pocket? He lifted the spectacles. Asante shrugged. I was studying them, she said. It's possible we can use them to give us a better way to identify Hannah than looking deep into someone's eyes and guessing. Ah, Menchu said. I'll let you know how things go in Germany then. Asante nodded. I'd appreciate that. Two, when Sal and Menchu arrived at the German National Park, all the hiking trails had been closed off with red and white police tape, and uniformed guards with radios patrolled to make sure nobody could sneak into the woods undetected. So much for not attracting any notice, Sal said under her breath. They're looking for someone, menchu observed. See the maps the the grid where they're marking off areas. You think it's related? Menchu looked at her sidelong. Do you think it isn't? Sal sighed, of course it is, it always is. She made her way to the center of the whirlwind and approached the person who appeared to be in charge, a gray-haired, dainty woman with the bearing of a panzer. Excuse me, Sal said, flashing her badge and hoping English would get her through. I'm Detective Sal Brooks, this is Father Manchu. We need access to this area for- The woman's eyes narrowed ever so slightly. What are you doing here? Her English was precise and British. Sal smiled it was the smile that told calling she was a professional and she understood how hard the job could be but that she could make it better we're here to help the woman sized them up i'm police counselor ropollan and right now we'll take all the help we can get matthew nodded toward the table of maps what are you looking for the stepmother of the missing children was red-eyed and unkempt, clutching an untasted cup of coffee at a picnic table, removed a ways from the bustle of police operations. I promised you I didn't do it on purpose, she said. I would never hurt those children, not even if. I mean, I, I lose my temper as much as anyone, but. The father, Sylvester, was a bear of a man with a close-shaved head and a jovial face at odds with his current haggard extreme. Nobody is accusing you, Magdalena. Not yet, Magdalena said. But I know everyone is thinking that I'm the wicked stepmother, I? and Then she cleared his throat and deployed his German rough, but passable. Yeah, I'm sure you didn't mean any harm, he said. But can you tell me exactly what happened? The children were being horrible. And when I tried to stop them, they ran away into the woods, Magdalena said. That's all. They never came back, and I couldn't find them. Manchu quietly translated for Sal. Councillor Ruppadon shook her head. We have no reason to disbelieve you. What do the children look like? Manchu asked. Magdalena pulled the phone out of her bag and showed them pictures of a pair of cherub-cheeked, curly-topped children. Yeah, you go, and Gudrun, she said. Were they acting strangely before they ran off? Sal asked. Were they being unusually imaginative or talking to people who weren't there? Were they quieter, or? Minshew passed the question on to Magdalena. Her face twisted up. They were being awful to me, she said, but I can't say that's unusual. Her husband cleared his throat. Minshew nodded. Nothing else? No, Magdalena said, not that I can think of. They walked away from the parents again and switched back to English. You are going to need to go into the woods ourselves, Minshew told the counselor. We have some experimental equipment that might help us find the children quickly. Councillor Rupallen measured him again, and Sal. There is a surprising number of children in these woods, such a small park, she said very quietly. at least one or two every decade. None of them have ever been found again. When bowed his head and answered the question the councillor couldn't bring herself to ask. There must be rumors about these woods, he said. I'm sure there are rumors about people like us as well. The counselor nodded again, slowly. I'll walk you over myself, she said. I'd call ahead for you, but we've been having trouble with our radios all day. I bet you have, Sal said. Asante drew her palm along the cover of a dark-bound book, so casually that Liam's guard was instantly up. Asante was many things. None of them was very interested in idle office chit-chat. Liam, she said in a tone that might have been offhanded for anyone else. If something urgent were to come up while Father Minshew is away with Sal, do you know how to get to Grace to wake her up? Liam drew back. What? I can't go into the dormitory at a convent. He said, there are rules. The nuns would slaughter me. They don't harm Father Manchu when he does it. That's different, and he only goes when we need her. Maybe they'd skin him too if he just popped him for a social call. That's what I'm asking, said Asante dryly. If he came to that, if something were to happen and the two of you needed to go on a mission before the others get back and I couldn't do it, do you know where to go and what to do? Liam shuffled his feet. I guess so. Why are you even asking? Why wouldn't you do it? Asante picked up the dark leather volume and leafed through the pages. I just needed some reassurance, she said. Above her head, the 36-hour clock was counting steadily downward. It's only nerves. If something were to happen, I need to know that we could count on you to handle everything. Liam looked over at the orb, now as quiet as it ever was. The Sky is so spooked. Is it that business with Father Menchu's angel? I suppose it is, Asante said. She put the book down again, giving up her pretense of interest in it. Every angel is terrifying.
0: We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration. Others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072. And the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. The national
1: park was exquisitely manicured with well-designed walkways, picnic areas, and hiking trails. That sense of habitation continued into the woods, which seemed less like a wilderness and more like something meticulously planned by a committee. Sal and Manchu hiked to the farthest reach of the gravel-paved paths, where a lone drinking fountain held vigil between the parts of the park meant for public use and those decidedly not. A sign was posted. Apart from such pivotal vocabulary as Schnitzel and Oktoberfest, Sal's German was non existent. But from reading the pictograms, she deduced that they were forbidden to go any further because of a scrubby looking brown bird. This is about where we should find the entrance, Menchu said. There's a seal in place, so regular people just go around the exclusion zone without realizing they're not going in a straight line. But we'll need to get inside. He put on the spectacles Asante had given him, cartoonish and out of place on his serious face. He winced almost at once. This is awful. And I see the problem. He pulled them off and gave them to Sal. Give it a try. Sal settled them on her nose. They were pinchy and the world through them looked off. Closed in and far away, insubstantial, headachy. And then she saw the boundary, like an almost mirror a dozen feet away. How do we get past that? Did we just go through it? Walk along the edge until we find a hole? There's a fold, Perry said. Sal jumped and looked around for her brother. He was leaning against the tree, hands in his pockets, digging a heel into the dirt. With the spectacles on, Sal could see an aura around him, something sparkling and strange. Sal pulled the lenses off. What are you doing here? She asked. She looked at Menchu. I don't call him, I swear. He just keeps showing up. Perry held a hand to his heart. I'm hurt. Don't you want me around? I helped last time. Menchu stared him down. You nearly got us stuck in the demon world. To be fair, that was Hanna's fault, and we got out eventually, so we're fine, right? I do not think fine is the right word, Menchu said, and Hana is not around now. stopped. Is she? Perry shook his head. You are not a part of the society. You should not be here. Aren't I a part of the society? Perry shrugged. As I see it, we share a lot of common interests. We're colleagues. We can be collegial. What do you want, Perry? Sal asked. Can't I just want to give my big sister a hand? His eyes were round and pleading. Last time was a bit of a mess. Let me make up for it. Sal paced away from him, one hand to her temple. They'd had this fight before. Sometimes she wondered if they'd ever stop having this fight. But he did want to help and he hadn't actively sabotaged them yet. If what Hannah had said was true about the world sinking, she couldn't think about the other thing. Her claim that she'd made the world not directly. But if it was true, he could be an asset. If he wasn't just setting them up for a bigger fall. Fine, she said at last. Perry took the spectacles from her hand and placed them on her nose again. Look for the fold, he said. It's pretty neat. Sal turned back to the woods. She turned her head, looking at the boundary with the edges of her eyes. What fold? It's wherever you want to get in, Perry said. He used the same condescending tone he'd always used his kids when he had cleaned his room faster than she'd cleaned hers or knew that she'd been sneaking cookies and had leverage over her. You just have to look hard enough. Sal so waded through the leaf litter to get closer. The boundary shifted and swelled as she approached like a balloon squeezed between someone's fingers. She held up a fingertip to touch its surface, then thought better of it. She took two steps to the side, then back, watching the almost mirror stretch. She turned her head to say something to Manchu. Out of the corner of her eye, she saw a hole appear. It was gone again when she turned back to look directly. Huh. Father, she waved Manchu over, I want to try something. Do exactly what I do, look straight and walk sideways. She turned until she faced directly parallel to the barrier and then stepped toward it, to the left, To the left again, keeping her gaze straight ahead. She passed through and into a different place entirely. The forest inside the barrier was not manicured or colonized. Loggers and pavers had never touched this place. Trees arched overhead, some as thick around as a small car, their leaves blocking out the sky. An indistinct gray light trickled through, barely enough to see that the soil beneath their feet was littered with gnawed bones. The trees were old growth, the forest floor eerily clear of underbrush. Not enough sun reached down here for bushes to grow. Menchu emerged from nowhere, stepping sideways with Perry following after. How could the children have come through that? Sal asked. Perry crouched down and tasted the soil, then frowned. Wow, that's pretty impressive. She's corroded the seal, like acid eating away at the inside of a bathtub, he said. It's weak enough that she can pierce through to snatch something she wants once in a while. A kid or two once a decade. Sal stuck the spectacles back in her pocket. Looking at Sparkle Perry while wearing them made her too lightheaded. What she do you mean exactly? Perry ducked his head. Well, you know. I don't, actually. We can read minds like you do, Menchu said, somewhere between apologetic and sarcastic. Sal snorted. Oh, he can't read minds either, father. Don't let him fool you. Sal turned away from Menchu and surveyed the dark stretch of trees. She forged ahead a few yards down the dotted line of a rabbit track. So, Perry, if you have special inside information for us, I'd love to hear it. She circled a tree, turning back toward her companions. They were gone. Three, Gudrun's cheek rested against the bars of her cage. It was something like a bird cage made of wicker, or perhaps bones, she couldn't be sure. Her brother was in a matching cage, sobbing quietly to himself. She would put a comforting hand on his, if only she could reach. But he was too far away and she didn't dare speak to him where the witch could hear. They hung over a roaring pit of fire. From time to time, showers of sparks would emerge from below, and each time Gudrun worried about what would happen if her cage caught fire, or if she did. The inside of the cottage was nothing like the outside. The outside had been sunshine and lollipops, gumdrops, and playtime. Inside, it was dark. Scratchy, sharp-fingered shadows crept across every surface. There was someone in here with them round of breast and belly, faceless and naked. Mud was smeared over her flesh and in her plaited hair. The witch. And then she wasn't the witch anymore. She was a sweet old lady with pink cheeks and a drindle. She shoved a handful of sweets into Gudrun's hands. Eat, eat up, my dumplings, she cooed. You must grow nice and fat for me. Gudrun stared at the candy in her hand. It looked as delicious as anything she'd ever seen. Bright red and orange and white candies with a shell of chocolate, something like gumdrops dipped in frosting. She took a bite, but where before in the forest, everything had tasted like the most delightful sweet she had ever dreamed of. Now it was like eating twigs and mud. She let the rest of the candy fall into the fire. A fresh eruption of sparks rose up when the falling candy struck whatever was down there. Maybe Gudrun thought there were worse things waiting to eat her than the fire. But oh, she was so hungry. The feeling pierced her and brought floods of saliva to her mouth. She thought she might die. She thought she might vomit. The kind-looking old woman gave her another handful of sweets, and this time Gudrun gobbled them down. They still tasted like mud. But for a second, they chased away the hunger. She pressed her face against the bars, hopeless, and begged for more to eat. Sal wandered the woods, calling out for Perry and Manchu. Her voice seemed small here, buried under a blanket of leaves and branches. She wished desperately that someone else were here with her, lost in the spooky forest where the leaves whispered ancient secrets and the trees wept blood-red sap. Stupid forest, stupid angels. She wished Grace were here. She could deal with anything, with Grace beside her. There was nothing in a forest so scary that Grace couldn't punch it into submission. She thought about Grace's hand, warm in her own. In a pinch, she'd even take Liam. Not that there was anything to be hacked here, but it would be worlds better than being all alone. Sal shivered. Had it grown colder and darker, or was that just a side effect of her disposition? At any rate, she was definitely gonna have to brain her way out of this, not like she had a trail of breadcrumbs to follow. The problem was that she didn't really know enough about the situation to handle it, not yet. She turned in a circle. So far, all she really knew was that a pair of children had been lost in the woods. Something, something, temptation and hunger, and Perry's unexplained she. Sal dropped into a crouch and tasted the soil wondering why Perry had done it. It was sweet and spongy, like a brownie. She spat it out again on the general theory that you shouldn't let magic into your bloodstream. Woods, candy, lost children? What did all that make her think of? The pieces slid together, a fairy tale. There were no breadcrumbs here, but there might be another kind of trail. She spotted the evidence almost as soon as she had the thought. There was a narrow deer track running through the trees, littered with shredded bits of leaves and twigs. She picked up a drop mushroom bearing the clear and unmistakable imprint of human teeth, small ones. Time to get to work. There was, after all, a pair of children missing. Even if Sal couldn't find Perry and Father Manchu, at least she still had a shot of doing the job. There was a roller bag suitcase at the top of the stairs to the Black Archives. Liam thought, at first, that his team had come home again. In his rush, Liam practically fell down the wrought iron stairs and into the archives, sounding for all the world like someone had dropped a bag of hammers. He always found it satisfying, like the army of captive demons below could be frightened away by something as simple as a galumphing Irishman's footsteps. Sal, he called, father meant you. He came across a curious scene. Asante hurriedly packing papers and books into her leather traveling case. No, they're not back yet, she told him. He crossed his arms across his chest, lowered his chin. Are you going somewhere, Asante? She stiffened, but didn't look up. I have to make a quick trip to London to gather some research materials, she said. It's an opportunity I can't pass up. I'm afraid you'll have to keep watch here on your own for a few days. She didn't slow her pace. Piles of paper were tapped even and placed into a folder and into the bag. She skimmed a stack of books, rejected four, took a fifth, and placed it, too, into the bag. Liam frowned. You're not supposed to be in the field, he said. What if solemn Father Manchu need support? He pointed at the clock over her desk. They'll be back soon enough. Can not you wait just one day to- I'm not going into the field, Asante told him. She clipped some papers together and stuffed them into her bag. This is a research trip. Researching in the field? Asante gave him a long, cold look. There had been ice ages warmer than that look. I'm visiting a colleague in London, she said. It's not a mission. He followed her up the twisting wrought iron stairs. But then I'll be alone here. What if the orb goes off again? What if it does? I'm not allowed to go on missions anyway, so you're no worse off without me. But what if... She turned back to him at the top of the steps. You know how to wake Grace up, she said. If he comes to that, then that's what you'll do. Liam is fine. But what will Father Manchu say when he gets back? Vasanti's face was closed off, her eyes distant. he will say what he says, and it will be fine. I'm not under house arrest. Be brave, Liam. The door closed in his face. Then the echoes of it rolled back to him from the vast space below. Liam sat on the steps, surveying the entirety of the library from this vantage point. It wasn't the first time he'd been all alone in the black archives, just him standing between the world and some thousands of demon infested books. But it was the first time he felt like he was the only thing holding them in. We can't lose sight of each other, said Perry. Space here doesn't work the way you expect. They gathered, Menchu muttered. Perry had trailed behind him as he'd circled the tree where Sal had vanished. Menchu went around the tree three times, clockwise and shins, and each time they had emerged into an entirely different part of the forest, or perhaps another forest entirely. Menchu had even placed stones to mark the way and never come across them again. I wish I knew what Sal has gotten herself into. Perry was a terrible outdoorsman. Menchu would have thought that angelic possession provided some skills or insight that would be more helpful the ability to speak to the trees and rocks, maybe, or at least some idea of the right way to go. But Perry stumbled over every rock, snapped every branch, and was, if anything, more lost than Manchu. The priest tried to shake off his annoyance and focus on the situation. He and Perry could try to search in an orderly fashion, but what did orderly even mean here? They could stay in one place, waiting for Sal to come back. That was the best advice for anyone lost in the woods, to wait in one place for searchers. But what if Sal did the same? Or more likely, what if she had found trouble and couldn't return? And if she could come back, wouldn't she have just done so in the first place? She's okay, Perry mumbled. What, so? How do you know? Perry shrugged. I just know she's fine, even if she's alone. Is this special angel knowledge? The words came out of Manchu's mouth with more bitterness than he meant them to bear. Special brother knowledge. Perry ducked his head and changed the subject. This is one of the places where the society couldn't finish the job, isn't it? He asked. He examined the moss on a tree carefully, sniffed it, then scraped it with a fingernail. Hmm, Sal had said he wasn't a mind reader, nor even halfway to omniscient. Then she wondered what else he knew about angels that was wrong. Everything, probably. How would you know that? Perry flashed him a smile that would probably have been endearing if Manchu were the target audience for a certain brand of learned helplessness. We share some interests, I pay attention. That again, with the interests. Manchu stopped in front of Perry to keep the young man, the angelic being, never forget that, From moving ahead. What kind of interests are you getting at? he asked. Perry looked down at his shoes as if screwing up his courage. The thing is, he began slowly. I wanted to talk to you about some more things, the big picture. You have terrible timing, Menchu said. What's important right now is Sal and those missing children. You know about the thing that lives here, don't you? Perry waved his hands vaguely. Kind of, something about women leading people into temptation, or hungry children, or some other typical church nattering like that. Menshew stepped toward him sharply. That was terribly familiar. Where did you hear that? He said. Have you been speaking to Asante? Harry drooped. Yeah, he said. Um, that's what I wanted to talk to you about.
0: You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm. Your portal to another world. Listen away.
1: You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.
0: Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yak. Performed by Exie Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolihi featuring Jody Redditch ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for realm, Mary Asadolihi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.